are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tomes. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Maria Murphy is a PhD candidate in musicology at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research considers the relationship between music technologies and body politics through the work of multimedia artists Lori Anderson, Yoko Ono, and Karen Finley. In her dissertation, Maria maps how these artists participated in a particular mode of aesthetic activism, which took part in the biopolitical shifts concerning the circulation and industrialization of information, the production of healthy and sickly bodies, and the political fictions of gender and sexuality during a precarious time for public health and social hygiene under Ronald Reagan's administration. Maria is also interested in developing creative spaces for hands-on research. She is the co-founder of Listening to Cyborgs, a media archaeology workshop on sound technologies. She described her research as multimedia, cyber, and bodily. And if you want to find out more about her Listening to Cyborgs project, you can visit listeningtocyborgs.com. Hey, Maria. Hey, Rob. So you have the distinction of being the first musicologist we've ever had on the podcast. I mean, you're a musicologist (laughs) among composers, so you're kind of like... That's I don't know. just like how it's always been for me. Jane, Jane Goodall or, or something? Mm, Composers in yeah, the Mist? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to think Mystics. about it that way. So I had, I'm had i having you on because of two reasons. Uh, one, we're old friends and I love you. And mm-hmm. two, yeah. because you're doing some really, really awesome research right now. And yeah, I want to talk about it. So... You've uh, you have a couple projects that I want to get into, uh, but I first want to start with your um, your dissertation that you're currently <laughs> finishing, right? I wish I'm currently <laughs> in the middle of writing. <laughs> All right, in the middle of writing. Well, that's you know, in the middle is still progressing towards finishing. I in think. the middle is not the beginning. Mm-hmm. It is not the beginning. You are not beginning your dissertation. Okay. No. So it sometimes feels like that, but no. Uh, so tell. Tell us about your your dissertation and what what the research is about. It, I know that um, that's so like a huge I'm, question. You're like, tell me, just summarize your book in a couple sentences. But <laughs> no, I'll try but, and keep it. Keep but it summarize short. your book in a couple sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm writing about multimedia performance art in the 1980s, mainly in New York, uh, looking at the work of Laurie Anderson, Yoko Ono, and Karen Finley, who all sort of straddled the realm of performance art and spoken word, and electronic music. Uh, And I'm writing about how all these artists participate in a particular mode of of aesthetic activism. Um, So these these artists are all articulating um, different politics at the time that they are writing and performing. So um, some of the political and social issues that I'm considering their work in the context of um, are the early years of the AIDS epidemic and the feminist sex wars of the 80s and basically all things Reagan. So different sort of military things going on and um, sort of thinking about national security through the lens of basically immunity. So that's sort of the theoretical lens that I'm working with. Have you, I mean, what is your background in terms of like, um, I mean, obviously you're a musicologist, your, your primary training has been in music, but what, what kind of background do you have in, in art? I mean, of course in performance art, but I mean, how, how deep have you gone into that in the past before you took on this project? Um, not much to be honest. So when I came into, um, the PhD program I'm in, I had planned on doing a, an opera topic, something to do with Strauss, maybe Electra Zalame or something. I remember um, that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So those were my uh, my other area of interest. And basically, I just um, I have always been familiar with the work of Laurie Anderson, uh, but I sort of started getting into thinking about uh, politics and aesthetics more broadly. And works that, and performances that sort of occupy multiple spaces. So not just music and not just um, really strong political critique, and but all of those things. So Laurie Anderson is someone who first worked, I, um, she did work in sculpture and um, 
you know, other sort of working with other materials. And so I was very fascinated that she sort of had her hands in a lot of um, pots, right? Is that what it is? Pots? Hands in a lot her of hands, uh, or, cookie uh, jars? Don't get your Yes, cookie jar. I think that's, yeah, that's hands the Hands in a lot official. of balls in the air. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll <laughs> she, find she it eventually. To, we'll find this moment. Yeah. <laughs> she was up to a lot of stuff, and I was sort of intrigued by, you know, the different, you know, working sort of across different media. And I was extremely taken with um, really her caustic political commentary, her her critique of, of government institutions, um, her exploration of technology and how it impacts our lives in different ways, and also the comedic lens um, through which she often examines these issues. And so that's sort of how I got going. But honestly, it is sort of a new project. Apart from my dissertation research, this this isn't um, this isn't my most familiar familiar musical background, right? But in a certain way, I mean, you're taking the kind of the the mode of wor- the the like working mode of uh, Laurie Anderson and just like getting into something, you know? Because that's why, totally. like, when I think of Laurie Anderson, it's actually really difficult to kind of pin down. Well, should we think about her as a musician? Should we think about her as a performance artist? Should we think about her as just mm-hmm. a straight up artist? Should we think it like there's so many? It's hard. It's very hard to pin down an artist like that, and that's why I think that artists like that are so interesting. Mm-hmm. Because uh, did you okay? So uh, getting a, into a little bit of our background, we were both at Rice at the same time. You were doing your master's degree; I was doing my doctorate. When you were there, was Mark Hirsch there? I think I mentioned his name to you before, but um, I, don't I don't think know you if overlapped. he was there. But I know who he is. I think because you're his buddy, but I've never yeah. met him. I don't think we're buddies. Okay, you should be buddies. I mean, everyone okay. should be buddies with Mark Hirsch. Oh, I, wow. Okay. I'll take I think that I've out. mentioned his name on this podcast more than any other person. <laughs> Wait, maybe I listened to his podcast. Probably. His podcast with you. Yeah, probably. He was. Um, Is he in California right now yeah. and Michigan Connections? Okay, yes. That, uh, that's why I know him. I no? I don't know if it's Michigan Connections, but. Okay, whatever. I may or may not know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anyway. Um, but Mark Hirsch is one of these kinds of people who does a lot of different things and it's hard to kind of pin them down. And he actually doesn't describe himself as a composer anymore. He describes himself as an inter-artist. Oh, um, no, I definitely listened to this. Yeah, this yeah. as well. So um, I think that's why these kinds of people are so, so interesting. And it's like every time I look at work of theirs, I'm just like, ugh, I want to do it. That's what I want to do. Why can't mm-hmm. I do that? Why can't I summon I know, the courage? Your stuff's pretty interdisciplinary too, Rob. I don't know about that, but yeah, um, you, you work with dance, you work with like various tech, you you know, yeah, that counts. But the difference, I think, the difference is, is that she, more often than not, she is doing everything, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she often. she's doing the sound, she's doing the visuals, she's doing, you know, the in many cases the performance as well. So right. it's like she's she does have. Is it a hand on a lot of pot? I, I, I want to find this metaphor. But I don't know. I'm embarrassed that neither of us can remember this. <laughs> but she has her hands on a lot of stuff. So um, so Lori Anderson is, you know, one of one of those people that is very interesting. What about uh, Yoko Ono and Karen Finley? What how were how were they also kind of interesting uh, personas to to bring into this? Mm-hmm. Well, um, one uh key focus of my research is on how these artists uh, manipulate their voice for musical means or, or other means. And Yoko Ono, you know, she has this quintessential, you know, very recognizable voice. Most re- recently, she released like a, a, a scream, um, which was her response to, you know, the American election. Um, so she, oh you know, she, yeah, I know. Yeah. Sorry not to bring that up. Let's, <laughs> let's avoid that for, for at least a few more minutes. Um, um, but you know, her, her voice has been, uh, very polarizing for listeners. And I, um, and that was sort of very intriguing to me. And also Karen Finley, she's more of a, she's almost more of a spoken word artist. A lot of her performances are monologues, but she has a a unique delivery style. It's almost trance-like. 
and it's it's extremely in, engaging and um, arresting to listen to. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in how these three artists, who are both, um, or who all three are also very politically active, how how their voices are doing this bit of work for them. The other aspect that um, you were you were kind of looking at is um, it's kind of body politics, right? Yes. So how does that come into play with these three artists? Well, all these three uh, artists are very prominently featuring their bodies in performance. So visually, but also uh, also sonically, um, Laurie Anderson. There are so many amazing clips of her um, using contact mics, you know, placed on her body, and she's, you know, she's playing her resonant body as a for sound material as part of her shows. So all of these these artists, um, Karen Finley, she's most f- famous for, you know, smearing shit all over herself. Um, so she has some sort of scatological aesthetics going mm-hmm. on as well. And, um, you know, Yoko Ono, she, um, when she and, and John Lennon were expecting, and they miscarried this child, but they made a recording of their baby's heartbeat, and that was featured on one of the, their albums, you know, Yoko Ono also, she has this amazing piece. Oh, I forgot what it's called, but it's basically a film of buttocks. It's like she oh, films yeah, a population right, right. of buttocks. Oh, it's so bad that I can't remember this. Um, you know, and Laurie Anderson, her early work, you know, she has this piece where you put um, your elbows on a table and you're listening through your body. So, you know, I'm very interested in the the body politics behind these works. Um sonically how they're how they're using their bodies and also the commentary that they're that they're making about bodies um you know there's at the time that i'm studying there's there's so much thing so many things going on in public health and social hygiene and and different ways of conceiving and producing bodies in all different means this is like when new reproductive technologies start coming out like um and becoming commercially available so there's there's a, a lot to be said of how these artists are, are articulating different um, messages using their bodies in multiple ways. And the, I mean, with with Yoko Ono, I mean, probably the one of the most famous pieces of Yoko Ono would be cut piece where she's right. where she's inviting audience members up to the stage to literally cut her dress off of her. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was just in. God, I can't remember where I saw it, but there was a big like uh, Yoko Ono um, exhibition. It was either at MoMA when I was there, or it was at the Tate in London. Mm-hmm. I cannot remember where it was. MoMA it was... did a a big Yoko Ono retrospective recently. Okay, then it then it was at MoMA, and yeah, like mm-hmm. getting to you know walking around that space and you know they had a lot of her videos and of course they had cut piece up you know one mm-hmm. of the i think the original video that she did and maybe even one a more recent one she does it quite often and i mean it's one of those pieces when you see it you there's there's something about the use of the own artist's body and the vulnerability of it i mean think about inviting strangers not not only like strangers to just come up to you and touch you but strangers to come up with a pair of scissors something that could kill you and be very intimate Mm. with your own body with your clothes and in the process of doing this piece you become i mean you're you become naked and that much more vulnerable and that much more like ex- exposed, not only, I mean, literally, but also, you know, emotionally and everything else. And it's just a really powerful, powerful piece that relies on the fact that this is your body. Yeah. I mean, she, there, there, are, you know, there's a, a very large body of work. Sorry. <laughs> <about> that. <laughs> nice. Ugh. Love it. No, it's Leaving horrible. it in. No, this is the first of many, many bad jokes um <laughs> you know karen finley also like has been nude in, in many performances and and honestly it's it that in particular those performances aren't um aren't my main focus though i don't disagree at all with you know your articulation of, of how they work and why they are so effective um right so in in i think in your case um or 
let me just ask in your case are you coming to this from like a uh, a more digital presence for bodies oh um i suppose yeah sort of in some ways um in terms of some of the ways that these artists are constructing the bodies that we see and hear so in one way one one um performance that i'm uh, writing about right now is Laurie Anderson does well she does a lot of performances where she uses uh, voice filters to right um, to perform different characters so she has um, this voice called the voice of authority it essentially lowers the pitch of her voice but she takes on this uh, she takes on a different persona but also she uses uh, the voice to create other bodies so in this one, there's like a made-for-TV um, musical film called What You Mean We, in which she, um, the premise of the film is that, you know, oh, she's so busy with all of her artistic commitments. So she hires, a, you know, some scientists, a design team to make a clone of herself. Anyway, and so there's a digital projection of Anderson herself, you know, playing her clone. You know, she's, and her clone is male, so it's a, it's, it's a short version of herself and she has a mustache and all this kind of thing. And then the voice filter is what is sort of characterizes the maleness of this clone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in this, in, in this example, the, the voice filter, the digital rendering of her voice is what is, you know, the material that gets used to create this, this cloned male body, this male version of herself. Uh, do you think that piece would work if it didn't have the video? If it was just... If it was just an oral, if we were just listening to dialogue? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do think it would work. Yeah? Yeah, I think it would work really well. Um, yeah, but I should I should test this theory out, and, and this is a good question, get people to listen to it. I mean, it's, it is not... Mm, I mean, maybe it is recognizably her voice. But it's a very different voice that we are hearing. It is a very different voice. The problem, I think, I think one of the problems with, and I wonder, because when was this piece made? It was 1986. Yeah. So I wonder if she did this piece now, where the technology mm-hmm. is so much more advanced, especially in terms of vocal processing. I wonder if she mm-hmm. did it now, if it would be if it could stand alone on its own, because in my opinion, I I watched uh, some of it. And Mm -hmm. the thing that was kind of taking me out of it is it's, it's really recognizable as a female voice that it's been, that's been pitch shifted. And it's because the, Mm. like the structure of the voice is, I mean, if you just pitch shift it down, it doesn't have the same resonance. It doesn't have the same, um, spectral qualities as a male as as a truly male voice has yeah well i guess i would just argue that there is no truly male voice rob what if if there is no truly male <laughs> voice why am i hearing it as just a female voice that's pitch pitch shifted i mean without even looking at it i could well that's just the way that we're taught to hear voices i mean we're we're taught to hear a lot of things in the voice and gender is is one of them okay that's uh, that's fair so I think that she plays on on that with this performance. I'm not saying that, you know, how you're hearing it isn't. I mean, listening to it, I know it's Laurie Anderson's voice. I know she's using a pitch shifter, you know. So it's, it's I think there's like one step of removal that still is. I have um, to suspend my disbelief. I think so, yeah. Movie magic. And it's yeah. part of that. I mean, it's it's comedic. I mean, the whole premise of the of of the film is is ridiculous, of course. Right. And when she uses the voice in other contexts, it's often in these somewhat ridiculous circumstances. So she uses it to sort of describe, you know, to sort of assume this like Carl uh car wow, car salesman persona. Uh-huh. You know, or a guy trying to sell you life insurance. So there's always like a bit of a you know, a seedy undertone or, or, you know, there's always a comedic effect, um, in a lot of her performances where she, where she uses, um, the voice filter. Um, but I am interested in just the notion of a voice processing in general and experimenting with the voice. And as we're even talking about right now, there are a lot of assumptions about the bodies behind the voices that we listen to. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm sort of interested in that as a maneuver, 
I mean, there's lots of things that we project onto voices that we hear. I mean, all types of different things, any kind of, lots of identifying markers. And sometimes they turn out to be somewhat representative and, and other times we are surprised. And so I'm interested in that little slippage between what we think we hear and the mishearings that we hear in voice. And the, I mean, the other thing that I think I'm wrapping, <clears throat> wrapping myself around to is that by using a filter that makes her voice lower in the male range but it doesn't have the same like structural characteristics that's kind of mm -hmm. like cartooning her voice it's not i mean it's mm. you know what i mean it's like we i yeah, hear I mean, that and i don't project a real person onto that i guess i guess i've never been concerned with whether or not we think it's a real person but i'm not sure that that's not a good thing to or an important thing to consider it's just I'm not concerned with the truth of a voice or whatever we think a truth, a voice's truth is, because I don't necessarily think that is something that can be known. But you are concerned with... Let me talk about another voice project okay. that I think might explain this a little bit better. But this has nothing to do with this particular research, but it is another research project that I'm working on with... Um, a friend of mine, uh, Craig Jennix, who's at McMaster University in uh, Ontario. So we um, were working on this piece about um, a trans artist, Luca Silvera. Mm -hmm. He's to be the, or he is the lead singer of The Clicks. And he documented his uh, transition on YouTube um, singing cover songs. So there's this amazing archive on YouTube of uh, him as he goes... Um, on hormone therapy and you you listen to his voice and you listen to it at all different stages in this um, hormone regimen and you sort of hear the different things that are happening to his voice and so there's not one point of that voice that I think is untrue or not real and his voice is is changing um, throughout these videos and even though um, towards the end of the archive, he sounds more like he sounds now and how he likes to be heard. But I don't think necessarily that the other iterations of his voice are not true or real as him as well. Right. But the difference is, is that those are all naturally, biologically, acoustically produced, as opposed to bringing technology into it. So that's where right. I think that... But that's just another type of, of intervention, like the technology is just one type of intervention onto the voice. That's I would argue. That's really interesting. So I think this kind of brings us back around to one of your other uh one of your other research projects projects that you've been doing called Listening to Cyborgs and it's you call it a media archaeology workshop on sound technologies. And if you're interested in learning more about this, you can go to listeningtocyborgs.com and find out more. But in this project, I've seen like some of the videos from the uh, workshops that you mm -hmm. and your uh, your co-founder, who, who is your co-founder for this? Uh, Roxana Filipowska. She is a PhD candidate as well in history of art. So I've watched some of the videos that you've produced about um, the of the workshops that you've produced for this. And... Of course, you know, you you guys are exploring different, let's say, just old technologies, you know, so mm -hmm. and and you have like you've put on some videos where you're performing pieces with these with these older technologies. So can you just kind of talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, well, basically, the impetus, the reason where we were working with a particular you know, technologies that we were, um, is because this did grow out of my research interests. So I was thinking, I want to write about, you know, Laurie Anderson, I want to write about these technologies, but I don't really understand how they work. I sort of get it, you know, I can read about what they do. And I can tell you the definition of, you know, what a what a vocoder is or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to understand how they worked and how they produce sound and sort of have a little bit more hands on research. So um, Roxana is, is just a, a, a brilliant colleague who does work on many, many things um, in, in the visual world, but also does work on, on sound art. Um, I really and so we thought, put together. I really thought you were just about to say Roxana is a rock star. 
Oh, I should have said that. She really is. <laughs> she is totally rock star. Um, that's that's so funny. I hope she hears this at some point. Um, so we decided to put together a workshop to put together some some grant applications to procure some of this tech, so that we could. Um, you know, figure it out. And, you know, we didn't have any experience, um, you know, with electronic music equipment, but we thought, you know, there's, there's so much sound technology that permeates our daily lives and maybe not, you know, voice looper stations, but in particular, but that there are, um, political effects of, of sound technologies in our lives. And, we're often very unfamiliar with, you know, the design, the mechanics and, you know, the implications of what these sound tools do in our daily lives. And so we thought we'd start with this tech. Um, So we got, you know, like a mixing, a mixer, um, a voice transformer, which is sort of like a fancy, you know, vocoder without like depressing the keys and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, We got, you know, just a, a couple of different looper stations, you know, one that does you know, retrograde and reverb and that kind of stuff and different effects. And um, we just got a group of people together who wanted to think about how people can manipulate this technology, appropriate it for different for different means, and also just understand how it works. So there were very basic goals that we had um, when we started working um, on this workshop. We, we wanted to bring together um, people from different fields to sort of help us unpack what the use of this technology does or doesn't do. Yeah, who were some of those people? Yeah, so um, Nadia Bateo was our um, our first guest. Uh, she's a sound artist who was based out of Philly, but now she's in LA. And her work is uh, extremely exciting. She does a lot of um, sound installations. She did an amazing piece called um, Unsung in one of the, um, whoops, sorry, in one of the, um, abandoned like train, what is this tunnel? Um, like the, where she, like a station, like a oh, train, not a station, just a, underneath a train, a huge tunnel. Oh, you mean like that a train goes through? Hmm. That's just or a big some... tunnel, Rob. Okay. I mean, what mad? what do you care? What goes through I'm it? I'm just trying to get a visual remember. image. <laughs> Um, okay. She did this amazing tunnel. huge tunnel. Got it's it. a huge tunnel, and um, there are a few of us who she asked to to sing in it and assume you know different characters of of women who had lived in this particular part of Philadelphia throughout history, and she projected her voices and uh, manipulated them and tuned them to these old steel beams that were there. And she's just a very exciting artist who's working with. Um, a lot of different media, none of the ones that we were talking about in particular, but she used to be, or not used to be, but, you know, she worked a lot with, you know, modular synthesizers and this kind of thing, but she had recently started working more with just software. And so she, you know, she just showed us how to use this one tool called uh, Forrester. It's a piece of free software that you can download. And it's like, I mean, I'm sure there's like better ways to describe it, but it essentially takes sound files that you upload onto this program and it, you know, there's some aleatoric components. So it distributes and seemingly, I mean, there's some algorithm, I guess it's feeding it, but random order and you manipulate it in different ways. And anyway, this is a way too long of a story, but the point is- The way you're describing it, does it kind of like chop up the sound and- kind of play it back at random intervals it doesn't it doesn't play it back at random intervals so uh, it plays it back as is but just cut up and stripped down cut up. and you move like a mouse around oh so it like it, scrubs like, it, through the audio yeah it manifests as these as like overlapping circles on a screen and you sort of use your cursor to um, oh. curse over different parts of the image so it's like a yeah, the data somehow get somehow gets visualized, and so the sound data that you upload. So it it kind of sounds like uh it kind of sounds like granular synthesis, though. It sounds like you control like how how big are the the little you say that things are in a, like an overlapping circle. So how like how long are those things in the circle? Well, it depends. I mean, because as long as you're if you mean duration, yeah. like it's however long your cursor is over that point, it just plays it over and over. Okay. So wait, but how? Oh, so you're asking how long is this? I don't know. Well, that's really um, that, that's kind of interesting because that's like, and then 
while you're using this, you can export your like performance out to another sound. Yeah, you can record yeah. it. Yeah, that's that's really cool. So it's just a, like it's just a, a graphic user interface that mm-hmm. um, that you can you know kind of perform your sound into into new ways kind of it does kind of sound like granular synthesis a little bit but i think you have more control over it so that's that's pretty cool so what is this app called or this is it an app it's called forester it's developed by leaf cutter john okay that's that's how you would find it um and it's free software to download and it's it's just it's just i mean it's there are certainly, you know, more interesting, sophisticated things I'm sure that you can do with it, but it's just an extremely user-friendly way to explore the different capacities and properties of sounds that you upload to it. Right. So um, this is somewhat tangential, but um, Roxana and I, um, this past weekend, and I'm sorry to bring up um, the American election again. I don't mean to keep doing that because <sighs> I don't want every discussion for the next four years to be built on that, but just hear me out. I will... It will be not that bad. You know what? Actually, so we when I was to... saying when I was saying huge tunnel earlier, I had a moment. Yeah, where you I was almost like, went huge. I did. I was. I felt really disgusting. Oh, anyway. I didn't even. I didn't pick up. Okay. Well, we we went to the women's march on whatever day that was Saturday. Yep. And um, we thought it might be a worthwhile endeavor, given the recent sort of political interest in databases, whether it's the threat of a Muslim registry or. Um, just people all over the world on Facebook registering, you know, at uh, Standing Rock to sort of flood the way that police might be able to identify people who are there. So there's all this sort of interest in, you know, what databases can and shouldn't do um, in the political, in the political realm. So we thought maybe it would be interesting to create an open source um, database of, um, you know, protest sounds. So sounds, you know, or sound collections or music excerpts to, you know, register your, you know, your stance or your, your, your sound against fascism Uh in some capacity. So it's not just about Trump. It's about, you know, the ongoing political history that's been going on and just seems to have blown up with Trump, but has been going on for a while. So we called, we made a call for submissions and we got, um, we got, uh, sound excerpts from, um, all over the world and so we pulled a few of those together on Forrester and um, went to the protest and projected these sound compilations while we were there. And so it was just interesting to hear like little snippets that got um, sort of pulled out when we're using Forrester. And some of the things that we made on Forrester weren't, you know, particularly interesting or sonically interesting. Um, so we didn't, you know, keep those. But some of the, for lack of a better word, mashups were really compelling and little words or you know, sonic phrases would sort of come up to the surface and created some interesting material. So it's a, it's a, it's a piece of software that Nadia Bateo uses in a lot of her work and one that she sort of thinks is a way of, um, she has a very sort of strong goal behind using the software, which is that it's, that it's free. I mean, to the extent that you have a laptop, of course. Um, so not really free, but, but in, in these days, one close, closer step to accessing something that's free um, and for the democratization of technology and music technology. And so it's, you know, that's sort of one of what's one of the aims of the, of the workshop, just to get back to the topic we started forever ago, <laughs> that we wanted to think about, you know, access to tech, technology and, and, and what can, what can these sound technologies be mobilized for and be mobilized to do? Well, and that, and actually, that's one of the things when you're talking about these, uh, some of the technologies that you were looking at. I mean, even though they like the looper stations and, you know, these like these vocal effects boxes, you know, they still exist, but the access to them is is that much harder because, I mean, right. you need you need a microphone, you need a microphone cable, you need, you know, uh, you need a decent set of speakers, you need you need all this mm-hmm. gear to make it to make right. it work. And some, you know, some of these technologies, like you said, that she was she was working with modular synthesis, extremely expensive, yeah. oh, extremely expensive. And, and at this point, extremely rare, because mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, and you know, I'm not I'm not going to make the claim that software can replace place analog because i just don't think it's yeah, true sure. but yeah for all intents and purposes software can replace analog you know yeah yeah, like, yeah. 
Uh, it's not. It's never going to have that same like quality to it. It's never going to have the same feel. It's never going to have the same workflow. But like you can get free or you know not thousands and thousands of dollars worth expensive of blah, thousands of dollars worth of gear to make these sounds so like that's kind of interesting to me that you're doing stuff i mean other than this other than this first artist but you're doing stuff with actual things boxes gear that has like is an actual thing that you have to plug in and you have to manipulate and you're using like you're not using a mouse you're not using a screen it's right. real it's there and that's interesting to me i think there is like a i mean not to like fetishize this equipment which i normally try to avoid but there is something very satisfying about touching the things that you are working with yeah oh it is and i mean as as like an electronic music person you know i'm every all day every day i am only interacting with a mouse a keyboard and a screen maybe a mixer like there i did this project with my students um last semester where we had uh it was a it was we just spent half the semester doing diffusion so we got a bunch of uh stereo pieces from you know my friends and colleagues around the world and uh we just sat at the mixer and like threw the sounds around in space and that's so much more Mm -hmm. satisfying than like you know curving a automation line on logic or pro tools or something it's like no you have to touch it you have to feel it you have to like feel it out and you and you have to practice I mean, Mm -hmm. this is a performance practice, and that's something that's really cool with what you were doing and what you guys were exploring. I mean, and you actually did some of these things. We did. (laughs) Right. I mean, you you sent me a video of you doing a Laurie Anderson piece, right? Right. So So we, at the end of the semester, we held um, Vox Populi as a... um, a gallery, a curatorial space um, here in Fishtown, and they um, let us host, uh, and we called it an anti-performance. Yeah. It was on April 1st. We couldn't bear to call it a real performance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although I, some of us, you know, not myself, but other people did, you know, pretty decent, you know, they were really compelling performances. I mean, some of the people who participate in the workshop were are also very active performers, so right. I shouldn't loop them in with me. But you know, we we did a couple Laurie Anderson pieces uh, as 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 a way specifically for for me mostly to to kind of piece together you know the work that she was doing and understand exactly like what the tech was affecting, um, you know, to create. But um, people got ex- extremely creative and some really interesting pieces came out of it. But, you know, there was some noise experimentation. There was some improv. There was um, lots of different stuff being done. And we had a great time. But, the, but yeah, we're, it, it, there is a sort of performance practice element of it. We had another um, sound artist duo, Scratch. Uh, they're um, Philadelphia-based. They're an amazing performance duo. And E-Jane uh, was talking about how they um, oh, manipulate the, um, okay, this is, it's like this long thing. It's like the touchpad and you load stuff onto it. It's just a nitty thing. Like it's a, just an interface, but it's, yeah, it's just it's like, a, it's just sensitive. like a, tu- a touch. Yeah. A, like uh, um, y- there are like drum pads, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like, it's yeah, it's like, like that. that only. Okay. So. So E-Jane, they use some type of, you know, touch, you know, interface that's preloaded or or they program sounds onto it. And they were telling us how the way that they, you know, that they are performing is so much related to the tactile experience of, of playing this particular part. I mean, they're working with two laptops and they're live sharing files between the two of them. It's an amazing thing to witness mm-hmm. there. And they're extremely just captivating performers, but EJ, you know, they're working with this, this touch pad interface. I wish I could think of the exact um, thing that she's using, but uh, that they're using, but, but they, you know, we're talking about that in the context of the, in the workshop about, um, how interacting with the technology is very much part of their practice as a duo. Mm -hmm. And they're also playing off each other constantly throughout their live performance. Um, And so that tactile material element is really forefronted in their work. So that was another thing that we're exploring, you know, the, what does it mean to engage materially with 
um, you know, the instruments in, in front of you. There, I think there's one more thing that makes these types of like this, this type of uh, performance or performance art or, or what I mean, whatever you want to call it. I mean, really, but it's the fact that a lot of these things, they don't work as recordings. They don't work even so much as videos anymore. They work as mm. live pieces. And it has something to do with the technology mm. because you're, I mean, you are working with stuff that, I mean, you're a performer. It's just like, you know, playing the cello or something. You know, yes, you yeah, can sure. you can document mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, there's something about being there. There's something about seeing them, you know, react to each other or 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 something like that, that I feel like, I don't know, we're, we're losing. There's also, like, performance. We're what, sorry? We're losing something by, by not going out to performances, by only relying on YouTube, by only, you know, downloading stuff. Yeah. I guess, but then I think, okay, this is somewhat ridiculous to say, but I also think about like the couple of noise shows that I've been to where it's like the less movement, the better, right? I mean, you you see this guy, he's sitting at a table and you're just surrounded by like these ginormous speakers. And it's like the, the smaller movements, like it's like, it's like the guy doesn't want to, I mean, maybe this is just the noise shows that I've seen, but it's, it, there's like a, He's kind of like a statue there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's really... I don't think two shows is really a large enough sample size to start no. making like, these gross generalizations. No, I mean, I think you have a point. Like, I, that that kind of stuff happens at a lot of, like, electronic music festivals. And, and, yeah, I mean, there is kind of this, like, guy behind the computer yet still up on stage persona that a lot of people, like, if they're going to do that, they take on. I actually saw this really, really cool piece once. Um, it was at ICMC in uh in denton it was uh in 2015 that i was there and it was a late night performance so all the late night performances all the festivals are starting to do this now they have late night performances okay. and they're all at bars or somewhere where Fabulous. you can drink yeah actually uh my piece as was, it should be my piece was performed at a late night performance which i don't know if it exactly fit <laughs> in there because it was like really quiet and subtle and but however i will say though it did make the bar shut up like they, mm-hmm. they, okay, cool. They actually like it's like each piece kind of transformed the audience in a way, you know, to they re, they responded to the piece and their, their, you know, uh, reactions and their behavior change. But anyway, I saw this piece. Um, I can't remember if it was on my concert or, or another concert, but anyway, he's using, I can't remember what the gear is, but it's some sort of like it's a box, and I think it has like it's almost like a pull string or something that it has yeah and it uh it obviously does something i mean actually i've seen several several pieces uh done for this particular thing but he this guy it was like scream metal type stuff Mm -hmm. and but it was done like in an electronic music context and he went up there and just owned that thing it was like he was using his entire body to like pull it all the way over his head and then like ram it down into the thing and it was like yeah, yeah, oh yeah. my god that's a because you don't see that it's so different you're that's used so to seeing the guy behind the laptop barely moving and yeah sure and i mean i'm a sucker for that kind of thing yeah and i mean it changed but like i said it changed the audience and i mean that's the thing that despite the fact that you can easily experience this at home by youtube by itunes by whatever the fact that you're standing around other people i mean that's what makes it so good in my in my opinion that there is this yeah com- i mean there's there's nothing like you know collective hearing experiences i mean yeah you know i mean but I, to me like it's almost like not apples and oranges, but I, I don't even really think of them as the same thing. Like, and I don't even know what, what I'm really identifying here, but, uh, you know, various live performances versus, you know, listening on the bus or, you know, listening on your best, you know, speakers at home or whatever, they all are sort of articulating a slightly different experience. 
the experience is different, but I think a lot of times, especially now, the material is same, if not identical. What do you mean? I mean that it's like you can have the ex- you have the experience on the bus, you have the experience over over speakers at mm-hmm. your home, you have the experience mm-hmm. in an audience. The material is the same though, because there's so much I feel like there is so much emphasis on creating things that rely on the fact that the majority of the people the uh the majority of the people that will listen to it will experience it by themselves. So when you're talking about this gear, you know, this stuff mm. that you play, that you have to touch, that it lives in a live setting because you you don't need it to do other, you, yeah. know, you don't need it to do recordings. You do, I mean, right. you can easily get a, an emulator for free on your laptop and just do it. So the whole, the, like, like you said, there's a kind of fetish around it. I think because no, it, for sure. it takes us back to Which that, I like try and resist, like when I'm writing about this stuff. It's very tempting. No, you I know. mean, it, it absolutely is that. I mean, I th- I feel like, especially now, um, a lot of things, like physical things that can easily be reproduced digitally, there is a fetish about them, you know? Yeah, like sure. freaking books. Like, I love the <laughs> physical book. I hate reading on a screen. And- no, I know. It's so hard. And also, like, all those, like, Facebook pages about, like, you know, library book porn where they have like amazing libraries in people's houses and it's like you just scroll through right. for like an hour. Yeah. But I mean, it, yeah, there's something messed up about that. <laughs> but I mean it's it's not even that like the reading experience is, you know, so different, you know, like, oh I hate reading it on a screen. I'd much rather read it on a piece of paper or whatever. But it's like the thing, the holding the thing mm-hmm. is just nice. You know, turning the knob on on the looper station or you know like really doing it there's something about that that is just so so enticing mm-hmm. i don't know it's just i yeah i'm not, I'm not sure and i'll i'll it, it sounds too simplistic but it's 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 just you know the the tangibility and the 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 clarity or yeah. or the lack of clarity like the wonderful mistakes and right the sort of um I mean that I mean a lot of us who participate in this workshop were in the music department who are historians who are theorists who are an ethnomusicologist and all of a sudden we're you know back on stage which some of us haven't been for a very long time. Well I actually wanted to bring that up because uh, <laughs> because I, can't I mean in the in the you you did the you sent me the video of the Laura Anderson piece that you also sent me like the 60 second talk that you did with the Oh yeah. with the vocal um the vocal effects on it but i mean you have uh at least in my memory you have a pretty great history of vocal performance in live situations um and i'm th- oh no i don't know if, <laughs> if you can ring a ball if we can't yeah <laughs> that's what you're gonna do. yeah totally i don't think i don't think singing Celine Dion at a bar on a sunday night constitutes performance experience but uh, with a sombrero on and you like standing up on a bar stool, it does. That's an experience. Days. That's a they memory. Were great times. Those were good times. <laughs> but, I mean, I was trained as a singer. I, I mean, know. I shouldn't. Yeah, not as a, a a popular music singer. So that's been a bit different doing doing some Laurie Anderson performances and exploring that a bit more. But yeah, yeah, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Well, you also, I mean, you you also sang one of my pieces. I mean, you were amongst the ensemble. Um, do you remember that? You probably don't. Yeah, remember. the Orange Show. Of course, yeah, I remember. Of course, uh, I can't remember you, you uh, I, when you brought up your um, uh, the concert or the like the anti. Do you call it anti anti performance? Anti performance. Um, I'm pretty sure that concert that I did at the Orange Show I called the unconcert. Oh my gosh! Really? Yeah, I think I so. must have like retained that. No, I don't and think you did. I mean, that's yeah, like, because no, it worked well. Actually, it, it, I think it was Roxana. She's like so much. I don't know if it's the sort of. I don't know. She's just so good at like thinking of, like the original name for the workshop that I had was something so stupid. It was like uh, I can't even remember. Like 
articulating the voice, processing the body, da 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 da, da and You were naming it like you name a paper. <laughs> yeah, I know, like, ugh, anyway. But anyway, Roxana, um, she comes up with a with any, you know, catchy title is is not my work, it's hers. But so I did think she think of the anti-performance. Yeah, but there is there is a certain um safety that comes with naming a, a concert like that, I think. It's like don't get your expectations too high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that orange show was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love that place. Um, there's oh, that's that's something I do want to talk about. So, I mean, we've like we've kind of talked a little bit about. I mean, we've talked a lot about Laurie Anderson. We've talked a little about Yoko Ono and minimally about Karen Finley. But I do mm-hmm. want to kind of focus on Laurie Anderson in a, in a yeah, in sure. A way. I mean, she is the main figure of 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 my research. Right. So she has this relatively famous thing that she says and i mean it's a, she's she's taking it from um burroughs the the idea mm-hmm. that language is a virus from outer space right is the original uh, original quote language is a virus from outer space and hearing your name is better than seeing your face so that's what she so actually burroughs never actually spelled that out in its entirety language okay. is a virus from outer space but he refers to language as a virus and where it comes from in different parts in his works right um, I think it's in the ticket that exploded, um, that text. Mm-hmm. And so Laurie Anderson, she writes a song called Language is a Virus from Outer Space. And the one of the performances that I'm writing about is from um, her show Home of the Brave. Um, and she starts that before she performs Language is a Virus from Outer Space, she performs Difficult Listening Hour, which is what the clip that I sent you. Yeah, the piece that and you, she did, leads, you performed. Yeah, and she leads into singing... Um, language is a virus with that final spoken word uh, spoken phrase um language is a virus from outer space and hearing your name is better than seeing your face that i mean i i, I love that you know and i was watching this uh, i was watching this lecture she it's it's up on youtube it's i mean it was what was it it was the red bull academy <laughs> Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But um, she was she was giving this talk about her work, and the, she also said something that was kind of similar. But um, it was in relation to her piece that she was talking about habeas corpus, and mm-hmm. uh, what she said was the world is made of words, and you can remake the world that in just if you kind of just tweak and turn just tweak the phrase and turn it and we'll call mm-hmm. it this instead of that i mean that idea that the world is made of words and that our experiences are made more often than not just of words and i don't know there's there's something in there so one example that she was bringing up is in this piece habeas corpus it's kind of about um it began as this, I think it began as another piece called Life. She's had a few different um, performances based on what she calls telepresence. So right. like the projection of, of of someone into a space that they're not actually occupying onto a cast of themselves. Right. And um, it, it so began, she's done a couple other places. Yeah, it began, the. I think the first one was uh, projecting the image of a prisoner um, in, in a prison um out of the prison onto right. uh, a sculpture or uh, like a, a human statue essentially right right so and that and that so that was done in italy and then she was trying to do it in new york and new york was mm-hmm. like no you're never going to do this blah, blah blah so um yes. she ended up using a former detainee of uh, guantanamo bay um, Correct. his name was uh muhammad el garani and mm-hmm. basically you're like wrapping the digital projection of his image onto a statue that resembled the Lincoln Memorial. And right. when she's... She and it's was, huge. Like, yeah. it's big. It's, like, three times the size of you when you're looking at it. Well, isn't it, like, the same scale as the Lincoln Memorial? Or is it slightly I smaller? I don't know if it's that big. Because I've been to the Lincoln Memorial, and I heard this piece at um, the Armory in New York. Right. I think it's smaller but it's really big yeah, i mean it's really, really big. big right so yeah but it's that same like seated figure you know reminiscent of of the lincoln right. memorial and um she was talking yes. about she was talking about guantanamo bay 
and how that how that words are the the way we use different words like frames are mm. obviously our perception so she was talking about like you know guantanamo bay is just a horrible place you know just torture and all this stuff and they had a huge problem with suicides at guantanamo mm-hmm. bay but and then all of a sudden one year all the suicides went away there weren't any more suicides anymore but there were a ton of manipulative manipulative self-injurious behaviors resulting in death oh yeah i mean that's guantanamo for you yeah exactly so it's like yeah this i mean that yes you can you can point to the fact that oh in a press release oh we had no suicides this year and that frames that well, frames i actually our, didn't didn't hear this yeah i mean that that totally frames our perception of oh well things mm-hmm. must be okay there i mean people aren't trying to kill themselves anymore but they are trying to manipulative manipulatively self-injure their self resulting well, in death yeah so yeah that's one way to spin it <laughs> yeah of course it was a very, it was a very powerful work, yeah. um, and and I I do have a critique of it as well, but I'll I'll talk about what I think worked really well with the piece. So, um, Mohammed Al Gharani was was detained at Guantanamo for several years without ever being tried. From age fourteen through twenty one, right? Mm, they detained yeah. him as a child, like that's correct. I mean, a child who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and was withheld again, never you know, having never been tried, which is the case for, for many prisoners um, in Guantanamo. And then when he was released, when it was found, you know, that there were no charges to be laid, right. um, he was told uh, he could never come back into the state. So regardless of the fact that this person, you know, had was a child and, you know, and was nothing. not convicted or even tried of anything, you know, was never allowed to come back into the States. And, you know, effectively that, you know, his, his presence was, was denied in this country, though he was a prisoner of this country for several years. So Laurie Anderson um, invited him to, to speak in the U.S. as a digital projection onto, um, you know, a, a cast of his body. Mm-hmm. And you would go into the space and the armory is like this huge, huge space. And you would sit on the ground and you would, um, you would, you would just watch him and you would wait for him to speak. So he was projected there, you know, live for the two full days that he was, um, or that the, um, show was going on. And, uh, I think it was every hour he would, so you had a Lou Reed, um, piece being played, um, you know, these guitar drones um, while you were sitting there and you would you would wait and I think a, a bell would sound and Muhammad Al-Gharani would sort of share these small stories or, um, you know, and he makes a, a, a call to President Obama to release the rest of the detainees at Guantanamo and each hour he would sort of share a different story. Um, and it was it was a, an extremely powerful piece. And I thought, you know, what a what a way to sort of give this voice a body um, you know, in the States where, you know, he, where he cannot actually be. So right. it's, it's, it was very striking. But one, one thing that also was, I guess, maybe disappointing given, given the, the political claims that I thought were sort of, um, informing this work. I, you know, Laurie Anderson apparently wanted it to be the sort of meditative space where you would go and you would listen to the guitar drones and um, Muhammad al Gharani was only permitted to speak once an hour. Mm-hmm. And I thought that there was like some, just some, some, some conflict there, some tension. You know, this is a person who, you know, had been silenced and detained for several years. And, you know, it was this amazing thing to have his image projected to be embodied in some capacity in the United States Um as a person who could speak, but there was sort of this, um, in, in an effort to have this aesthetic experience of this meditative experience, um, his voice was still silenced to some degree. That's interesting. But I mean, yeah, I found it a little bit frustrating. I mean, I don't think that anyone expected him to sit and talk the whole time, but you could go into another room, um, where you could hear him, you know, tell all these stories and in the program of the piece, you know, he had, very long narratives drawn out of different things he wanted to convey to the, to Americans, to, um, the, to the government stories he wanted to share. And so there was a way for you to get access to those and to learn about those. But, 
you know, in some ways I thought this piece was an amazing sort of decolonization of the voice to put this voice in this place where it was not supposed to be. Um, but I still found it a bit frustrating that it was still with so many regulations on that voice. Right. But don't you think those are more like practical regulations as opposed to like, you can't, you can say this, you can't say that. I mean, isn't it possibly, isn't it I think more one to of the, the, the audience there, like you hear the bell and, Oh, it's time. Let's go. Mm -hmm. let's yeah. Go no, listen. I think that there was sort of a, a curatorial reason for that. Um, there's just still a little, a little cognitive dis dissonance with it. Just a little bit. Maybe, you know, I might've been projecting a bit, but it was, it was very bite-sized, these short, you know, little clips that, that got voiced. And I just felt like it was, it was such an amazing and big project. I just thought having his voice featured even, even more would have, would have made it even all the more effective. Right. But it's a, I mean, it's an extremely exciting project. I think it worked really well. Um, I mean, it, to walk into that room and to, to see this, this arresting image, like it's so big mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it's, um, you know, it has dimension, it has depth because it's such a large cast. So even though it's a, a visual projection, it takes the shape of the cast and it's, it's amazing how it's done. It's very, it's incredibly lifelike. Right. I was talking with Kate um, this morning as I was um, as I was getting ready, and I was just thinking about Laurie Anderson. And honestly, I haven't really I haven't really paid it that much attention to Laurie Anderson. In oh my past. gosh, you haven't seen Heart of the Dog? No, but I you did have to. You're the biggest dog lover in the world. No, I'm not. Okay, you're not. But you're like you love your dog. <laughs> Do you love okay. your dog? Say it on this podcast. Uh, he's all right. <laughs> oh, come on. Okay, he's... that I'm sorry, but like this has nothing to do with the work that I'm writing about, but Heart of a Dog is an amazing film. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was she th that's one where she's telling stories, right? Mhm. Mm yeah, it's, it's... actually um that was she she mentioned that in the um in the in the talk I was <clears throat> excuse me, in the talk I was listening to and she she told this story about like falling through the ice with her two twin brothers when she was eight years old. Was that yeah, in it? Yeah, there are like some, I can't remember to be honest, but there are a lot of really wild stories that you think aren't true. And then you find out that they're like biographical, like they're real stories. I mean, maybe right. she aestheticizes them to some extent, but yeah, there, I can't remember if that particular story is in the film right. or not. Well, anyway, um, but I was, I was talking to Kate and I was, th I was thinking about Laurie Anderson because, because I haven't really, you know, considered her much. Be I think because she is this like, like what I said at the very beginning, she's hard to pin down. Is she a composer? Mm -hmm. Is she an artist? Is she like, what is she? Like, what, what box do I fit her in? And that's been my like, um, it's, I think it's been difficult for me in the past. And now it's like, oh, I don't like now it's a bit easier i think to to experience her work because you know you can you can see like uh you can see the films on youtube you can see these interviews mm -hmm. you can see you can see you can experience her work without being there which like flies in the face of what i said earlier about actually being <laughs> there in the space to perform and i would still love to see these things in real life but it you know the fact is I, i'm in china and i'm guessing mm -hmm. that laurie anderson uh, any piece of laurie anderson isn't coming to china anytime soon um, i don't know i think i think she does a lot of traveling i'm gonna look up her schedule and i'm gonna find yeah, does she have tour dates <laughs> i don't know if she has like tour dates <laughs> <laughs> but i was talking to kate and i was just like you know after after listening to this, after looking at the work, after reading what I did uh, uh, that uh, from you about her, it seems like Laurie Anderson is kind of poised to be the next like Pauline Oliveros figure in I could in, yeah I could sort in of music see that. and art because I mean when like I guess Pauline just died when was it in November or something right. Yeah, and that that actually kind of yeah that hit me harder than I thought it would. Yeah, I know. Me too, actually. Yeah, and I think it's. I mean, she she's kind of this like, I don't know, experimental mother figure, you know, <laughs> and 
she, in so many ways, she has affected the way I think about music, the way I hear music, the way I experience music, even more so than a lot of my teachers, you know, and I've only, I've met her, I've met her twice and I got Mm -hmm. to talk to her once and it was only for about a minute. And that experience for me has meant so much more than a, you know, than so many other like and, and not only that but like reading reading her writings and and listening to her pieces and then also performing her pieces and there's something about the way she thought about music the way she she wrote music the way she performed music that was really special to me and in listening to i mean obviously they're very very different artists and they think very differently about the role uh the the role that music should play but i kind of see similar like i i it's not that i see similar things in laurie anderson i see a similar reaction in myself to listening to laurie anderson so like looking looking at her music just to like prep for this to talk with you so i didn't sound so i didn't sound like an idiot um oh come on it was really good like I'm I'm into it. I want to I want to look at There's some more. great shit. I mean, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And there you know, I'm also like um I mean, musically in terms of like style, there's not necessarily like a a very particular or like a strong line or genealogy from Oliveros to Laurie Anderson, no. but they are like two women who are doing like some uh really innovative work with um new technologies, you know, of their contemporary moment. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I mean, Laura Anderson's work is so compelling because, you know, she's working with this technology as she's critiquing, you know, the way we use technology, you know, in, in our lives. And so there's, she's, she's interrogating her own work as she's performing at many different levels. I think that's what makes her such a compelling figure. Yeah. Not that we have to all love the artists that we write about, but it is something that that makes her worth writing about, I think. So you're in the writing process right now. Yeah. In this <laughs> but if people wanna if people wanna go check out um what you did with listening to cyborgs, they can mm-hmm. go to listening to cyborgs dot com. Yes. Um where else can people find out about the lovely, lovely Maria Murphy. Oh my gosh. I mean, I have an academia.edu page, but I don't think really? that's like the kind of thing you advertise. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave it at listening to cyborgs. Okay. Are you mm-hmm. you're on Twitter though, right? I am, but like basically I got Twitter when I lived in Houston and I would tweet at you about like meeting for lunch, and I haven't done a ton of great work since then. <laughs> I do have a Twitter account. Your Twitter output it's, is not so not so big anymore. No, it's not. I mean, every once in a while, like I think I listened to a new Noni album like last year, and I made some tweets about that. But I think that honestly is my most recent Twitter activity. All right. So listening. But to if you want to tweet at me and have a great conversation about meeting for coffee, I'm at Maria Elaine Murr, as in Murphy. Maria Elaine Murr. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much, Maria. This was awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. <laughs>